From the newsroom of the Washington Post. This is Cleve Wootson with the Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, April 15th. Today, why the U.S. is placing new sanctions on Russia. And the former Trump officials still looking for jobs. The Biden administration just announced a set of pretty significant sanctions against the Russian government, principally for its interference in the 2020 elections and some other associated malign activities as they're described. Shane Harris covers national security for The Post. This had been expected to be coming for some time, given particularly that we have a new Democratic president and the previous administration was mostly inclined to slap Russia on the wrist for a lot of its mine activities. But this is an effort, I think, by the Biden administration both to punish the Russians and make life difficult for them. And I think it's fair to say also signal that there could be more perhaps even more severe or equally significant steps coming in the future if Russia continues to, as we see it, step out of line and threaten U.S. interests. And just for context, when we're talking about the Russian hacking or election interference in 2020, what exactly is the U.S. alleging that Russia did? Russia, the intelligence community has said publicly, they didn't exactly mount a repeat of 2016 where we saw them spreading a lot of propaganda and importantly stealing Democratic Party and campaign emails and then leaking those publicly. This was more of a propaganda effort to try and get disinformation and misinformation, principally about Joe Biden, into the kind of the media bloodstream to circulate it in Congress. So that's one piece of this. There's also, and this is separate from the election piece of it, but another kind of very significant hacking operation that has been uh, attributed to Russia, the so-called Solar Winds hacking attack. So Solar Winds is the name that is given to a really expansive hacking operation that ultimately let the Russians, we think, get into many, many U.S. corporations as well as government agencies. These sanctions really blame directly on both the SVR, the Russian Foreign Intelligence Agency, as well as the Kremlin. This is a very direct shot by the Biden administration to say this major hacking operation that has occurred this year, we are blaming Russia for that. So so what exactly will these sanctions do? Well, there's kind of three things that jump out to me as the most important. One is that it will sanction individually a number of entities and individuals. And be, we're talking about financial sanctions here for the most part, basically trying to you know, restrict their movements, restrict their ability to access money that were responsible for carrying out these various operations. It will expel some Russian diplomats who have been mostly identified as intelligence operatives, we could say diplomats kind of wink-wink, or in air quotes there, from the embassy in Russia. That's pretty standard in a situation like this to expel people from the embassy. But also, it's trying to take this broader action to limit the Russian government's ability to access the debt markets, to raise money, to get access to foreign capital. And I think this is also significant because it shows a couple things. One... 
trying to put a kind of a greater squeeze on the Russian economy rather than just trying to hurt individuals, but also, you know, a signal that we are trying to sort of internationalize this response and trying to get our allies on board and making more of a broader sanction. I think the United States is trying to say, look, this is Russian aggression and behavior that isn't just significant to us in the United States. It's also meaningful to other countries that they might take these operations against as well. Because, of course, this isn't the first time that the U.S. has placed sanctions against Russia. But in the past, especially in the recent past, I think that they've been viewed by some people as something of a slap on the wrist. And so these new sanctions basically represent something that is more aggressive and theoretically might result in more actual financial impact on Russia and Russians. That's right. The Biden administration, I think, safe to say here, is trying to go beyond the kind of more wrist-slapping measures or very targeted measures of the past and do something that's more expansive and that's just tougher overall to make the bite deeper, to make this hurt more for Russia. And that's important because when you're talking about sanctions, you know, there's only so many tools in the kit, as it were. And so you've got to be careful as you use those that you don't use them up all at once, and then you have nowhere else left to ratchet up. And what has Russia or President Putin said about this? I don't think we've heard Putin yet, but the Russian government through their spokespersons have said, essentially, this is uncalled for. Uh, you know, there will be retaliation for this. This is unjust. That's pretty garden variety response from the Russians. It raises certain questions on, well, what could they actually do? I mean, Russia is not a very large economy. They don't have the kind of throw weight that we do. What they could do is launch more malign activity. Uh, and it's important to remember that this is also happening at a time when we are seeing a a very significant buildup of Russian troops and military forces along the border with Ukraine. And I think that we have to consider the possibility that some retaliation the Russians might take or want us to think they're taking could be some kind of military activity in that part of the world. So these sanctions, there's a world where they don't actually dissuade Russia from doing the bad actions that we are trying to dissuade them from doing. It could actually ratchet things up more and make them want to be more aggressive in taking actions against the U.S. Yeah, I think that's possible. Part, definitely part of the calculus. I will say that an intelligence officials have been on the Hill testifying the past two days about a range of different global threats and have been asked about this. And so far, the posture of those officials seems to be, look, we're watching this buildup. We're concerned. We're not highly worried. They have also said that they don't think that the Russian government wants a military confrontation with the United States. If they were to do something like push further into Ukraine, that could be what happens. Certainly, if they were to take action against the NATO member state, there's a possibility we could be at war with Russia, and maybe the Russians don't want that. So Russia's options are somewhat constrained here as well. But there's always a risk of when you take these kinds of retaliatory actions that you start to get into a tit-for-tat. What will the Russians try to do next? Will they try to one-up us, or will they try to, as they see it, kind of reset a status quo? which, you know, might be the best outcome that you'd hope for. But you need these to be seen. They're designed to be public action so that the world understands we're ratcheting things up with respect to Russia and that there'll be consequences for their actions. And what about American allies right now? How do they view this? And are they on the U.S.'s side in trying to take more action against Russia? 
I think generally speaking, the answer is yes, our allies are are with us. We've had some reporting today as well that we'll be looking to bring them on. The administration will be inviting Britain, France, Denmark, and Estonia actually to join an annual Pentagon cyber exercise that's coming up, which I think is meant to also be a signal of some kind of international alliance here and some unity around this. You know, there's really no one among America's allies who approves of this Russian behavior, there are just some allies who might feel that they have more to lose. And so the United States also has to persuade our allies that, you know, this is worth coming along and that there'll be a unified front and we'll have their backs if Russia decides to take it out on them. I'm also curious to understand a little bit more about how previous sanctions have worked. Because as we said, Obama, Trump, they've also taken some actions against Russia. What did those actions look like and did they have any effect? Does that inform our expectations of whether the result from this will be a uh, dissuasive effect or a ratcheting up? I think it's safe to say that the sanctions in the past have, have left most experts feeling pretty underwhelmed. They certainly haven't deterred Russian aggression, at least in any kind of, you know, comprehensive way, right? I mean, Russia still interfered in our elections in 2020. They're still building up forces along the border with Ukraine. They still are behind the massive solar winds attack. Um, so in that sense, if you're like trying to draw, you know, a link between do sanctions stop those kinds of activities, arguably, no, they don't. And they're fairly directed in terms of limited ways at companies and individuals. I think what's different here is that the Biden administration is trying to more broadly restrict the Russian government's ability to access capital, to raise money, to issue bonds. And in that sense, is kind of saying, look, if, we, if we're not going to go at individuals and try and deter Russian behavior that way, could we try and basically throw a blanket to some degree over the Russian economy and really try and suffocate it in a way that causes real harm to Russian leadership? And, you know, a lot of this, while it's not explicit, is aimed at trying to undermine the regime of Vladimir Putin. I mean, when we talk about Russia, we're talking about one man, right? I mean, this is not a normally organized country. It's kind of a criminal petro state run by a former intelligence officer. It's more like an organized crime organization in some ways. A lot of our our policies in the past have been, seems to me, kind of targeted at traditional ways of going after individuals and trying to deter behavior. And it's not working because it's not deterring Vladimir Putin. And if you really want to change Russia's behavior, that you've got to get Putin's attention. And maybe one way of doing that is if you weaken the Russian economy, maybe you strengthen the, you know, pretty considerable political opposition that does exist in the country right now to Putin. That might be one goal. It's a much riskier goal from the standpoint of the U.S., but it might be one that gets more results. Clearly, what's happening right now represents the fact that the relationship between the U.S. and Russia, and especially between the Biden administration and Russia, is not good right now. But I also wonder what this says about how the U.S. is approaching, quote-unquote, hostile states more generally. It's fair to say that our biggest strategic challenge on the world stage right now comes from China. It doesn't come from Russia. China is a militarily in some ways, well, maybe not as much as Russia in terms of the nuclear arsenal, but it's, it's building a military to compete with ours. It has huge territorial ambitions. And importantly, China has a huge economy. It's the world's second largest, and some think that it might become the largest and eclipse us in the near future. I think that the Biden administration has been trying to, on the one hand, 
kind of reset expectations about how the United States government is going to behave, which is to say we're going to have a more consistent approach than the kind of more mercurial approach of the Trump administration, and one that was basically built around Donald Trump's personal relationship with world leaders, including a lot of authoritarians and dictators. Uh, and so there's, A, a resetting of that, making it very clear to, you know, to Vladimir Putin, you know, you're not our friend, but we'll deal with you. Making it clear to Kim Jong-un, like you're not getting any love letters from this president like he did from the last. I'm trying to be realistic about that and, and understand that the world is incredibly complicated and fraught and dangerous right now. But the Biden administration is also, it's not looking to ratchet up hostilities and tension, right? The president just announced we're, we're pulling forces out of Afghanistan after 20 years. I don't think Joe Biden is looking to get into any foreign wars. And that's even led to some questions about like, well, what is the strength of American resolve. How would we react if the Chinese decided to make an incursion into Taiwan? It's long been understood that if that happened, that could be, you know, a cause of military conflict between the U.S. and China. Will it be? Does China think that Joe Biden doesn't really want to go that far up the ladder? And so maybe this is the time? Because there's such a demonstrated incentive or interest for the Biden administration to kind of pull us out from military involvement with the rest of the world, that it's this open question of, like, would we actually get involved if push comes to shove? Yeah. And I think there's been an open question maybe for even for many, many years on the part of Chinese leadership, whether or not the United States is really willing to risk possibly even going to war with China over Taiwan. And, and there you see a kind of creeping, almost uh, feeling sometimes feels like inevitable expanse and projection of Chinese power and territorial claims to the point where maybe they're calculating that it's just not worth it to the United States to fight back against all of them. I mean, that's kind of a bit, you know, far afield from where we are with Russia, but it's part, you know, to your question, it goes to this sort of thinking of how does the United States approach these relationships and these adversarial relationships? Clearly, what the Biden administration seems to be wagering here is that it is worth it for us in the case of Russia to take these much more aggressive stances and to try to undermine potentially even their economy. That These sanctions that are being announced today probably tell you something about where Joe Biden and his administration plan to take our approach to Russia. Uh, and it's one in which obviously he's open to dialogue, but he wants to make it very clear that he's going to be tougher than the previous president and arguably tougher than the president he worked for, Barack Obama. Shane Harris covers national security for The Post. The story was produced by Ariel Plotnick. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it. And why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. Monarchmoney.com slash podcast. 
And now one more thing. So we're a few months into Biden's presidency now. Can you tell me what happened to all the officials from Trump's administration? Like, where are they now? Uh, A lot of them are really trying to get settled still. Tori Newmeyer covers the intersection of Wall Street and Washington for The Post. He spoke to our producer, Emma Talkoff, about the fate of former Trump officials. A number of people from the Trump administration had long careers in the corporate world before they joined the administration. Some of those people are struggling to get footholds back in that world now because they seem to be wearing something of a scarlet T. Public-facing companies don't want to bring those people back on board because they're afraid of reputational risk. But beyond just the fate of these Trump people, I think the struggles that they're facing re-entering corporate America speaks to this bigger dynamic that we're seeing right now that is potentially really consequential for the future of the Republican Party. It used to be not very long ago that you could take it for granted that what was good for Republicans was good for corporate America, vice versa. They saw their fates very clearly intertwined. And the fact that Trump people are now seen as toxic by big public-facing companies, I think, speaks to this bigger uncertainty that we're seeing play out in a bunch of different dimensions and debates right now, where it's not clear that CEOs and other corporate leaders think that this version, this sort of Trumpified or post-Trump Republican Party, necessarily has their best interest in mind. And the corporate world is kind of torn between its traditional allegiance to the Republican Party and a competing set of demands from their customers and their workers to embrace a whole set of progressive values that don't necessarily have a bearing on their bottom line, but speak to the, you know, the kind of world that this next generation wants to live in, whether it's, you know, a diverse workforce, whether it's taking climate change seriously and doing something about it, equitable pay. I mean, all these, this whole other suite of concerns and corporate America is really caught in the middle. Normally, headhunters work with high-profile members of an outgoing administration to get them top jobs at big companies or on corporate boards. That's how it would go for people like Elaine Chao, Trump's transportation secretary, who also served in the Bush administration. So one of the people that we took a particular interest in was Elaine Chao because she's really a staple of the Republican power circuit in Washington. Her career in Washington dates back four decades. So she has pre-existed the Trump phenomenon and certainly the Trump administration by a lot. And she is a regular at conservative think tanks. She's married to Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate. She has served on more than a dozen big public company boards. So she is someone who has a really outsized profile and came in to the administration with that. And now that she's out, she's looking to get back onto public company boards. And I talked to headhunters who have been talking to Elaine Chow, and they say they're trying to place her, and they have found very little appetite among the companies that maybe just you know four or five short years ago would have been very proud to have her on their boards. And like, I guess to me, that doesn't seem that unusual. Like, I would think maybe anytime there's a new president, former members of like their administration might sort of be seen as outsiders for a bit or or just struggle to get a new job as there's this power change. But it sounds like you're saying this is actually pretty unusual. 
Well, so one of the things that we looked at to try to test that proposition was how did alums of the George W. Bush administration do when he was leaving office at the end of 2008? And, you know, he was certainly a guy who was polarizing in his time. He had very low public approval ratings, um, was enmeshed in a bunch of different controversies and unpopular initiatives from the war to the financial collapse. And yet, we looked at his cabinet members and saw that within the first quarter, just the first three months after he left office, three of them had landed high-profile seats on uh, four very big public companies. So it's not a huge sample size, but neither is a cabinet. And just the fact that there was a market for these guys coming out of the administration that doesn't exist for the Trump people, I think, tells you something. There are uh, over 100 board seats right now that are being filled by companies in the S&P 500. We looked at them, not a single member of the Trump administration who served into his last months in office uh, have secured any of those seats. Do you think we might see former Trump administration officials seeking out more non-traditional roles? Maybe they're going to go outside of Washington or outside of the kind of top corporate world that they would have preferred. So we've seen Ben Carson, the uh, kind of uh, unlikely presidential candidate in 2016, who became the HUD secretary for Trump. He is forming what he is calling a do tank as opposed to a think tank. One of the things I learned at HUD is you can facilitate cooperation with town halls, roundtables. You get local press to come in and you get people from different sides to actually discuss things, put things on the table. That makes a big difference. Which looks like and, it could uh, be a kind of launching the, pad for uh, another bid for public office. We've seen Mike Pompeo um, join the Hudson Institute and then another group that is sort of an anti-ACLU that fights for evangelical Christian rights. It looks like he is eyeing his own presidential bid in 2024. If Let's say there's a scenario Donald Trump makes a decision he's not going to run in 2024. Would you consider getting in that race? Sean, I'm always up for a good fight. I care deeply about America. You and I have been part of the conservative movement for an awfully long time now. I aim to keep at it. Uh, Mike Pence right. is making I'll, sort of I'll similar moves. A, so I think a lot of these people are going to be jockeying for the MAGA mantle, and none of those people are going the traditional route. They're all sort of trying to stay in a, in a pretty tight orbit around Trump. So is there any way in which this might be seen as a good thing, right? That it's not quite so easy to just go straight from politics to the corporate world and then back again? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think boards in general are a kind of preserve of uh, clubbiness that the Trump administration was promising to dismantle. So, I mean, I don't think this is what they had in mind, but this idea that there's a real kind of um, established elite in this country and they go from running companies to running the government to back to running companies with the expectation uh, sort of built in that when they're in government, they're going to do what's best for the companies that they're inevitably going to return to, that that doesn't necessarily produce great outcomes for workers or other people who's who might see their best interest as different or opposed to the interests of corporate leadership. So, yeah, I think, I mean, if they're to the extent that this might herald a breakdown of that old revolving door, 
I think there are a lot of people who would be cheered by that. Tori Newmeyer covers the intersection of Wall Street and Washington for The Post. This story was produced by Emma Talkoff. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Rena Flores and Ted Muldoon. We also want to correct a story from Tuesday's show. In our segment about the shooting of Dante Wright, our reporter misstated a Brooklyn Center Police Department policy about guns and tasers. She said that tasers are kept on the dominant hip and guns on the non-dominant hip. The police chief at the time, Tim Gannon, actually said in a press conference that it is the other way around. So if you're right-handed, you carry your firearm on your right side and you carry your taser on the left. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.